the church. Uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're visiting with us today, uh, thanks for joining us. We're glad that you're here. Usually as a church, we preach through a book of the Bible. Um, we just finished up with our sermon series in Ruth, which is an Old Testament uh, book. And But for the summer, we're going to do something a little bit different. For the next two months, we're going to be preaching through your big questions. And so uh, we hopefully, we, we strive to be a church where people can ask big questions. That they, if they're wrestling with a certain doctrine or topic or part of aspect of faith or an objection or, or church, uh, we want people to be able to feel like they can ask questions, that they don't have to shy away from their doubts and their questions. And so this sermon series is, is uh, kind of birthed out of that. And so we've done it a few times in our past as a church. And so uh, for the next two months, we're going to be preaching the big questions that you have. So if you, we've already gotten maybe five or six already. If you have questions, uh, send them to us. Big questions at highwealthchurch.com. We'll try to preach through all of them if possible. Some, you know, questions maybe just have a, a three-minute answer, and so we might just email you back, uh, but we're going to be doing that all throughout this summer. So please send us your questions that, that you have. So for us as, as a city uh, and as a church, we all watched six weeks ago as a white police officer kneeled on the neck of an unarmed black man for nearly nine minutes. And as we saw George Floyd's life leaving his body right in front of our eyes, as we watched his killing on video in broad daylight, we're all forced to see and to acknowledge the evil in the human heart. We're all, we all, we're all forced to see and acknowledge the sin of racism, this heinous sin that says that the color of someone's skin makes them less human or less valuable than others. And as we all know, in response to George Floyd's murder, it brought about not just local or even national, but even worldwide protests and marches. Because of the quarantine and the coronavirus, we could not uh, just forget about it. We were forced to watch and listen. We had nothing else to distract us for weeks. No sports, no award shows, no movies. And over the past six weeks, the option to just distract ourselves or to put our head in the sand was just not an option for us. It was taken away. And so we've all been forced to look in the mirror, look in the mirror in, into our own hearts as well as into uh, the past of our country or organizations or leaders, etc. As Jamar Tisby writes in his book called The Color of Compromise, he says, uh, racism never goes away. It just adapts. And so even though we don't currently have race-based chattel slavery here in America, though in other parts of the world it is still going on, racism is still a great sin that we as a nation still have to deal with. It's still in the human heart and it still permeates culture in subtle and not so subtle ways. And so this is essentially how we got our first big question. There's actually a series of questions kind of wrapped around this idea, this experience, this uh, sin that we've all been confronted with the past six weeks in so many different ways. So we summarized uh, the question like this. How is the gospel the greatest hope against racism? How is the gospel the greatest hope against racism? Or maybe the longer question was kind of more like, I know that the gospel is the solution and our great hope in general for my salvation, but does this apply to the racism and the civil unrest we are seeing as a city and going through uh, as well as a nation. So our big question today is, how is the gospel the great hope against racism? Before we start, before we begin to answer this question, we have a couple disclaimers. First of all, we're going to especially be talking about individuals. We're going to be talking about our human hearts, your human heart. Yet, uh, in reality, there is systemic racism in, in, in different ways. So our theology, the Bible teaches us that the human heart is sinful. And then it also makes sense then that the institutions that humans create, the organizations, the laws, the businesses would also be tainted by and poisoned by sin, including the sin of racism. So there's lots of things that we can do as individuals, as families, as groups, uh, that we maybe even should do at times to 
fight against this systemic racism. We live in a democracy. We have uh, power. We have influence. We have privilege. And we should use that for the sake of uh, justice, for the sake of peace, for the sake of healing. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But since we are in a church right now, we're, this is a sermon, not just a TED talk, we're going to be especially focusing on this question. How is the gospel the greatest hope against racism, both for our own hearts as well as for our church and our neighborhoods and our city and beyond? So we're especially going to focus on how a church can best fight against racism through the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel. If you, uh, we're just going to be scratching the surface today. I'm just acknowledging that. Most of these big questions, it's going to be like that. Uh, hence why they're big questions. But um, if you want to talk more about this, uh, this topic in a safe place, along with Hiawatha Church family, um, if you have questions, if you just want to hear from others, if you want a place to process and discuss, uh, my wife and I and Eric and Leah Miller are going to be hosting a couple conversations on gospel and race. So uh, July 8th and July 13th, 7 to 8.30 p.m. at the Miller's, uh, in the Miller's yard. So if this is not enough for you, and it, it sh- sure might not be, or if you just have other questions or you want to process with other believers from our church, we'll be having those two conversations. So you can join us on either one of those. So just know that this is not an end, even though the sermon will have an end. So uh, more questions, just talk to myself or Eric or Leah or Amy. Uh, the second disclaimer, though, is uh, we, must tr- uh, we must trust and treat the Bible as our greatest authority and our ultimate truth, okay? We are a church right now. Maybe some of you are not Christians or don't f- be- believe the Bible or f- believe all of the Bible yet, but we as a church, we do believe that this is the Word of God. God literally spoke these words to us. He wants us to know Him. He wants us to know truth, and so we are going to trust that this is that this is true. And we're always, whether you're on the left or the right, we're all tempted to let culture or our experience uh, be our ultimate purveyor of truth, our ultimate guide. And while cultural ideas and while our own experience are very important and do have some weight in our lives, of course, today we'll spend the majority of our time in the Word of God to find our answers and to find our hope. So just know that's where we're going to go as a church here today. So to answer our question, or back to our question again, we are asking, how is the gospel the greatest hope against the sin of racism? So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the Bible. We're going to really, really quickly go through the entire thing, see the storyline of the Bible, and see how you cannot get to racism through this book. When you understand salvation history, when you understand God's plan of sending Jesus Christ to right the world of all wrong, to conquer sin and death, we will see that racism is, is antithetical to the message of the Bible. So we're going to start with that, and then out of that, we're then going to talk about what the gospel does to motivate us and to change us to fight against racism in our own hearts and in our church and neighborhoods and city and beyond. So we're going to start by looking at the Bible, see how the, the message, salvation history, uh, speaks in, in stark opposition to any type of feelings or, or views of ethnic superiority or racism or hatred towards others. Or another way to say this, as uh, Rebecca McLaughlin writes in her book, she says, trying to marry biblical Christianity to white-centric nationalism is like trying to marry a cat to a mouse. One is designed to hunt the other, not to mate with it. So let's get into the Bible. Let's see, what does the Bible say about race, about ethnicity, about uh, humanity? The first thing we see, even on the very first pages and first words of the Bible, we see that God is the creator. God is the designer, not just of the world, but the details as well. God is the designer and creator of human diversity, of ethnicity, of skin color and eye color and hair color, and, and, and uh, wants us to be culture makers in his image. So the, the diversity of all tribes, tongues, and nations, as the Bible often says, the diversity of all tribes, tongues, and nations is his good plan. It's his plan. It's his desire. It's his creation, and he calls it good. And he equally and fully loves each human being 
who was created in his image. So if we start off the very first few verses of the Bible, we see that all humans are created in God's image. This doctrine is called the Imago Dei. We, we read this at the very beginning, the first few verses of the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so right off the bat, we see that humanity, unlike any other animal or plant or part of creation, is uniquely designed to image God. We were created in God's image. We are to reflect him. We are to mirror him. We are to resemble him in, in, in powerful, unique ways that nothing else in creation was able to do. And in that, that also means then, if every human is created in God's image, that means that every single human has incredible worth, value, and dignity because of the Imago Dei. Julia Newbell writes about this. She says, This understanding that God created each of us equally with dignity, value, and beauty this understanding should inform our views of one another. Knowing that we're made in his image and that he loves us enough to want to forgive us means that we can, with the Spirit's help, truly love one another. So this doctrine of the Imago Dei forces us to see each human as valuable and equally loved and equally, yeah, equally valuable and loved so now, as we continue on in the biblical story, we know Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. They sin, and, and, and death and sin enter into the world and corrupt and poison and ruin everything. So now, humans created in God's image can no longer perfectly image God. We're like a mirror that's now broken. In some ways, we still can kind of reflect our creator and God, but just like a broken mirror can reflect what is standing in front of it. The image of God, while still there in each human, is now broken, and now we no longer perfectly resemble our God because of sin. But God doesn't give up on his cherished creation right there. But he begins his rescue plan. He begins a plan to, to fix sin, to fix death, to fix everything that we broke. If we fast forward the story a little bit more, a few more chapters, God picks a guy to us that seems very random, a guy who is imperfect, a guy who is sin-filled, a, a guy who did not know the one true God, who was worshiping false gods, a guy that was full of sin, and a guy that was from modern-day Iraq. And God makes a promise to him. And he tells this guy, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to make a promise with you. And it is through this covenant that the remedy to sin and death will come. It's through this covenant, through this promise, through this guy named Abram, and then later Abraham, that God would restore humanity into right relationship with God. And then from that, a fruit of our relationship being restored with God is that our relationship with others can also be restored. We see this promise God makes with this man named Abram, Abram who later becomes Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says, The Lord said to Abr Abram, Go from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So right off the bat, maybe you know this story a little bit, and you maybe say, well, God seems to show favoritism. Why does he pick Abram and not Bill or Jim or Susan? Why does he pick this guy? He seems like he's showing favoritism or partiality. But when we read the story, we see that, first of all, Abraham was not a, a, a special guy anyway, right? He was sinful. He was worshiping false gods. He was far away from God. He wasn't looking for God. But rather, Abraham was just a guy chosen by grace alone. Second, we see that he was chosen not just because God wanted to show mercy and grace towards someone, but Abraham was chosen so that he would be used by God to bring blessing and salvation to the ends of the world, to all people on earth, all tribes, tongues, and nations. And it's kind of veiled right here at the very beginning of the Bible and throughout the Old Testament. We don't fully know how that's going to play out, but when we read the New Testament, when we read 
a, a passage that is after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. It looks back on this, Genesis 12, this, this, this promise, this covenant between God and Abraham, and it says this is actually the gospel beforehand. This is the good news of Jesus Christ over a thousand years before Jesus actually showed up. We read this in Galatians 3. And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And then he says here, the author of Galatians, Paul, he says here, Note, it does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but, but what does it say? Back in uh, Genesis 12, Paul says, go back and look. It says to your offspring, singular. And he says, who is this offspring? It is Christ. So the way that God is going to bless the world, the way that God is going to spread his remedy and salvation to the ends of the earth, to all tribes, tongues, and nations, was through Abraham and his singular offspring, Jesus Christ. The way that God was going to bless the nations was not going to come just through Abraham or just through the, the Hebrew people or the Israelites or the Jews, but rather through Abraham's single offspring, Jesus Christ. So God's promise, God's desire was always to save the nations. And he does that through Abraham and his covenant and promise to him. So God keeps his promise. He, he makes his promise, his covenant with Abraham. Abraham uh, and his descendants become a great nation. Millions of people, they get enslaved by Egypt, if you know how the story goes, and that God rescues them out of slavery and oppression in Egypt. He gives them a land, and he says, you are going to be a nation now. You are going to be a people. And when he does that, he tells Israel, as Israel is being created as a nation, he tells them who they are, he tells them their identity, and then he tells them what he wants them to do. And we see these really powerful phrases that help us understand what's going on here. So after God saves Israel, gives them a land, calls them a nation, he says this. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now therefore, speaking to Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So at first reading, we might think God is showing partiality here. He's saying, Israel, you're my favorite. I have lots of kids, but you're my favorite kid, and I'm going to tell you this. But when we see what God is doing here, just like he was doing with uh, Abraham, saying, I'm going to bless you so you can be a blessing, here we see God is creating Israel into a nation and saying, this is who you are, this is how I want to use you. First, he says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. A whole kingdom, a whole nation with each one of you in, in, some, in some ways in a priestly type role. So think about what priests did in the Old Testament. So as God is creating Israel, he's saying, I'm going to make a whole nation of people who intercede between God and man. I want there to be a whole nation full of, of people, who, uh, people who show all the watching world who the one true God is. So God creates a nation and tells them, you are going to be to me a kingdom of priests. And of course, there's a priesthood within the nation of Israel, but God is saying, in some ways, I want the surrounding nations to look and see who the one true God is by looking at Israel. Relatedly, they're not just going to be called the kingdom of priests, but also a holy nation. And holy doesn't just mean without sin or righteous. Holy also means set apart, means distinct. So God is creating a whole nation to be different, to be set apart, to be distinct from the Egyptians and the Canaanites and the Philistines so that they demonstrate who the one true God is. Not because Israel is, is, is greater or better or has more worth as human beings to God, but rather, God wants them to be a holy nation to show the watching world who he is. So through Israel, if they would do what they were supposed to do, if they would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, the watching world would be drawn towards the one true God. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. 
And we also see Israel getting a really big head, right? We see them being very prideful, looking down at the surrounding nations, thinking, hey, we're pretty special. We're pretty great. Other nations are scum. They're less than human. And so throughout, also throughout the Old Testament, we see God step in and use the unlikely, use the people on the margins, use the non-Israelite, use the minority, use the non-Jew. And we just spent six weeks hearing this in story form in the book of Ruth, a common example that we see over and over again. God not choosing Naomi, the Israelite, but choosing Ruth, the Moabite, the foreigner, the minority, the woman, the person who, who's a widow, the person who doesn't have any power. And God makes her not only the hero of the story, not only the, the title of the book of the Bible, the, the book of Ruth, but also he uses her to be uh, a person in the lineage of Christ. God uses her to bring about the rescuer, the Messiah. She's an ancestor of Jesus. And God does this over and over again to remind Israel, yes, you are my chosen people, but you're not special. You're not great. You're not better than the others. You're just loved. You're just chosen. You're wanted. And so when I use uh, Ruth, when I use Rahab, when I use non-Israelites, he's reminding his people that they're chosen by grace alone. All right, let's fast forward in the story now to when Jesus shows up. So Jesus shows up, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God in human form. He takes on humanity, and he doesn't look like this, right? We should know this. Jesus did not have blonde hair. He did not have blue eyes. He was born in, you know, in uh, Bethlehem, in Israel, in the Middle East, and he probably looked a lot more like this, with darker eyes and skin and hair. And when we look at Jesus' life, when we look at his teachings and his ministry, we see that Jesus is constantly breaking cultural norms and even uh, some laws in order to both spend time with and even serve the ethnic groups or the races or the nationalities that his people, the Jews, hate. He makes friends with Samaritans, the, the, the traitors to the Israel people. He serves the Romans, the people group that's oppressing his own people. Jesus even makes the hated ethnic minority, the Samaritans, he makes a Samaritan the hero of one of his most famous parables, the parable of the good Samaritan. And even though Jesus comes as the Jewish Messiah, he comes through the line of Abraham, he is the remedy, he is the savior, he comes as a savior for the world. When Jesus is... is is, is announced when the New Testament speaks of him, he, he comes as the savior of the world, not just the savior of the Jews, not just the savior of Abraham's descendants, not just the savior of the Israelites, but the savior of the world. First John 4, 14 says, God the Father sent his son to be the savior of the world. And First John 2, 2 says, Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. So Jesus, even though he was the Jewish Christ, the Jewish Messiah, came to save people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And when he creates his church, when he sends his church, he intentionally tells them, go to the ends of the earth. Spread this message of salvation and hope and remedy and life and forgiveness when Jesus sends out his disciples in Matthew 28, a passage often called the Great Commission, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then when Jesus ascends to go back to be with the Father, there is Pentecost, and the early church is born. And like Jesus, the early church and the disciples were also not white. We see after Jesus... Uh, Right, right as he is about to leave he, in Acts, we have kind of a different version of the Great uh, Commission. Jesus tells his disciples, when I leave, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so what happens at Pentecost, Jesus is, has, is uh, now resurrected and ascended. He's reigning at the right hand of God the Father, and this Pentecost was, it was a huge festival Jews from all over the world come into Jerusalem to celebrate. And when they do, that's when the Holy Spirit descends and comes upon the disciples. 
And the disciples speak in all these different languages, in Egyptian and Persian and Philistinian and what other languages there are. And the people from all these countries are saying, how do these guys from Jerusalem, how do they speak my language? And in my, in my native tongue, they're speaking this good news of, of God's salvation. And thousands convert right then and there. And then through persecution that comes to the church, they go back to their home countries. And just like that, the gospel spreads all over Africa and Asia and Europe. They take the gospel back to their own nations, their own people, their own ethnicities. And it's always been God's plan to save people from every ethnicity, language, and nationality. He sent his disciples with the gospel to the world. In just a little over 100 years after Jesus' resurrection, by 180 AD, we see the gospel and churches spread all over uh, Africa and Europe and Asia. And in fact, some of the most notable church fathers were not from Rome or, for, or only from Rome or only from Jerusalem, but some of the most noble, notable church fathers were from Africa even, which maybe you didn't know. Augustine and Clement and Tertullian and Athanasius and Cyril all came from Africa. And then when we read the last book of the Bible, we get this glimpse into what eternity is going to look like. So we see God's heart for the nations. We see his plan come in through Jesus Christ and through Jesus sending his church. And then we get this glimpse into what eternity is going to look like. We see God's sovereign plan for his salvation to reach to the ends of the earth, and it actually becomes a full reality. In the last book of the Bible, we read about what this glimpse into the future, what eternity will look like. We read, after this, I look, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, from every tribe, every people, and every language, which no one could even number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. So that was about 15 minutes flying through the Bible. So hopefully as we see God's plan of salvation history, we see that racism hatred towards others, any feelings of ethnic or racial superiority is just incongruent with the message of the Bible. God himself is the designer and creator of ethnicities and diversities of all tribes, tongues, and nations. It's his good plan, and he doesn't show partiality to others. And each human is created in God's image fully in his image and thus given incredible value and dignity and worth just by being human. But even though that's true, and even though probably most of us in this room are very convinced of that, our world is still filled with hatred and racism and partiality and nationalism and feelings of ethnic superiority and violence and prejudice. And God's people aren't unique, or sorry, aren't immune to these sins either. So even though Christians and unchristians alike can agree that this Bible says don't be racist, the reality is that just declaring the law, just declaring God's desire does not change our hearts, does not instantly remove all hatred or racism from our own hearts. So it brings us back to our question, what is the solution to racism? And as Christians, we soberly know that until Jesus returns, Sin and death will continue. But until then, our greatest hope in the fight against racism, the sins of hatred and partiality and feelings of superiority and pride come through the gospel. The good news that Jesus came in flesh in place to, to die in place of those who were different than him. It's that good news that is the solution. The gospel is the good news that God died for his enemies, for those who are different than him, in order to make them his friends and invite them into his family. The gospel is the good news that gives us both the power as well as the motivation to kill the sin of racism in our own hearts and in others. Just knowing God's law doesn't change hearts. Just knowing God's law doesn't give us the power over sin in our own lives. Education alone won't remove the hatred in our hearts. Social pressure alone won't give us or people the motivation 
or desire to love and serve and befriend people that are different than them. Public shame alone won't keep people from having racist thoughts and desires. Politics and laws all by themselves being passed won't reconcile people towards people that they think are their enemies. It is only the gospel that can fully do that. And while all those other things that are mentioned are good, and most of us should be involved in most of those things, the reality is for us as Christians, we should never put our full hope into them. So, so vote for good laws to be passed. Call your legislature. Post online. Put up yard signs if you want. Have tough conversations with people. Use your influence and your power to fight against racism. But we cannot put our full hope into those things as Christians. It is only the gospel that can fully do that. It is only the gospel that can change hearts. It is only the gospel that can move people from peer pressure and shame and being forced to be anti-racist. It is only gospel that can move people from that to actually loving people and serving people that are different than them and repenting and moving on from their feelings and actions of hatred towards others. The gospel is what gives us the remedy and the power and the motivation to change. So I've seen how the gospel is the, the good news of God's salvation history is the opposite, the antithesis to the message of racism. The good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior, gives us lots of things. So we're going to look at one of those things that helps us then kind of begin to answer this question of how is the gospel our great hope against this particular sin? And what, one of the ways we're going to do this is we're going to look at a fruit of the gospel. For us, believing in the gospel we are changed. The, gospel, or the, the, the Bible says that if we trust in Jesus, we are remade. We are reborn. We receive a brand new heart. Something is different within, within us. And now we move from that former identity to a new identity. The, the New Testament speaks about us now having our ultimate identity being we are in Christ. And so it is this new identity that comes out of our salvation, that comes out of the gospel, that gives us our, our, our great hope against all kinds of sin, including this sin as well. Now through faith in Christ, we are new creations, and it is this new identity that kills the sins of prejudice and racism and hatred and pride. So even if you're not a Christian here today, and some of you might not be, what I want you to see is that there's lots of good things out there in the world, right? Education, social media, laws, government, social organizations, uh, lots of different good things out there. But I want us to see, all of us to see, Christian and non-Christian alike, that it is only the gospel that can actually change people's hearts. It's only the gospel that can change and give us true, good, altruistic motivation for loving our enemies or loving people that are different than us or not demanding our rights and our comfort. It is the gospel that gives us the motivation and the power to truly humble ourselves and, and to repent and to want to change. So let's look at what the gospel does, a fruit of the gospel. So as we have this new identity, the New Testament says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone has trusted Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins, they are a new creation. The Bible speaks in all different kinds of language that's similar to this, right? We're a new creation. We're reborn. We're given a new heart. We're filled with God's Spirit. We're now in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The old has passed away. And see, the new has come. So if you are a Christian here today, the old Jesse, the old Alan, the old Amy is gone, and you are a new creation. And so let's look at how our, this new identity we receive in Christ, how this gives us, I mean, we can look at many different aspects of our identity in Christ. We're going to look at three different ways how this new identity is more important than our old identity and then leads to this motivation and power for defeating all kinds of sin in our life, including the sins of racism. We're going to look at three ways this new identity in Christ moves us from racism to enemy love. This new identity in Christ moves us from hatred 
to compassion, from apathy to empathy, from feelings of superiority to humility, from partiality to true spiritual and familial love for others. So three, three different ways that the New Testament speaks about our identity in Christ. Uh, it talks about us having a new race, us having a new nationality or new citizenship, and a new family. So before we look at these three, we need to just, just be real clear. The nationality that you have, the ethnicity that you have, the family that you have are very important. We're not saying that they're not important at all. They've, they've shaped who you are. It's, it's good that you value those things a lot. So when we read these three different passages that describe our new identity in Christ, we're not saying our old identity is completely rubbish, right? We're just saying there's something even better than the family you were born into. There's something even better than you being a citizen of the United States or of Mexico or of Canada or wherever you come from. So still value your ethnicity, your nationality, your family of origin. They're very important. But in Christ, we now have a new race, a new citizenship, and a new family that's even more central to our identities than the natural one, than the first one that we had if we are Christians. So the first thing we see is that First uh, Peter, speaking to Christians, speaking to the church, says that we now have a new race. We are a chosen race. First Peter 2.9 says, But you, speaking to Christians, speaking to a church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praise of the one who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Which sounds super familiar, right? Sounds just like that passage we read when God speaks to Israel and says, this is what I want you to be. This is who you are. This is what I want you to do. So now as Christians, our ultimate, when we think about who we are, our ultimate uh, race, if you want to say it like this, is that we are chosen. The first thing we should think of is not that I'm African-American or, or Caucasian or Latino, but even more important than that, even though that's very important to who I am, even more important than that is that I am chosen. I am loved. I am desired by the God of the universe, along with my whole spiritual family, along with the church. We are chosen. And now, as we see so many parallels between this and what we read back when God is speaking to the nation of Israel, we see now the church fulfills even to a higher degree what Israel was to do for the nations. The church now has the gospel, the full gospel, and can bring this good news to the nations, and it does. But not only this, our identities in Christ also give us a new citizenship, a new nationality. Now, even more than being citizens of whatever nation on earth you're a part of, there's something even greater than that for Christians. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom. Philippians 3.20 says, Church, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord, or our King, Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.19 says something similar. So then, Christian, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, with other Christians. Christ's kingdom is our main uh, country that we now live in. It's the main nation that we're a part of. Our citizenship in Christ's kingdom in heaven is an even greater thing than our citizenship in whatever earthly nation we're a part of right now, even though that might be great. And then out of this Ephesians 2.19, we see our third, our third way that our identity in Christ leads to a new identity change in heart. We see that we're also a part of a new family. Most of you have, have pretty good or even great families of origin that you grew up in, but even more important than that is now your spiritual family for us as Christians. John 1, 12 uh, says, but to all who received him, received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
1 John 3, 1 says something similar. See what kind of love God the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And so even more important than being a Peterson or a Thompson or a Trosset or a Warren, even more important than being a part of that earthly family is now we have a new family, a spiritual family. We have a new father, an ultimate father, a heavenly father. And in all of these, all three of these areas of our identity in Christ, and I just pick three, there's many more. In all of these, we see that we have, that we are a chosen race. We're citizens of Christ's kingdom. We're adopted into God's family. In all of these, we see all these are given to us by grace. They're gifts. We did not earn them. And we say this all the time here, right? Salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone. So we have nothing to boast about. So Christians should be, because of this new identity, we should be the least boastful, prideful, arrogant people out there. Because we know all these things are gifts to us. We did not earn them. We're not better people because we are Christians. We've just been chosen. We've just received, we're just recipients of God's mercy and grace. We're reborn. We're welcomed into a new citizenship by grace alone. We're adopted into a new family by grace alone. And it is these aspects of the gospel, and again, there's many more, it is these aspects and fruits of the gospel that are our greatest hope against racism. So the gospel is our remedy. We're all infected by the disease of sin, and one of those sins is racism, as we've been talking about today. It comes out in our thoughts and our motives and our words and our hearts. But the gospel changes the human heart. Through faith in Christ, we're given a new heart. And through the gospel, we can kill sin. We have a new identity. We're not the old, sinful, racist, hateful person anymore. We now have the Holy Spirit living within us who changes our motives and our desires. And he gives us the power to actually kill sin that's still in our lives. Something that education or technology or peer pressure or laws or politics or social media posting cannot fully do. And finally, it is the gospel that motivates us. Right? We're saved by grace alone. We're not special. I'm not special. But we're loved. We're not better than anyone else. And that's what the gospel teaches us and reminds us over and over again. All is given. Nothing is earned. And so as we wrap up here, let's look at three kind of common racist thoughts or things people say or we probably all said in some way or another in our hearts, in our, in our, in our <laughs> minds. Maybe we've actually said this. Okay? So I got a couple texts from people during first service saying, oh, as you were saying this, I kept thinking of people in my life that needed to hear this point. And then they ended with, and then I realized the Spirit said, uh, this is a mirror. Think about your own self first. So as we're going through these things, yes, you probably not said these three phrases this week, these racist thoughts. Yet, let's also hold up a mirror and see how we still have some of those in, in our lives as well. So the first one, I am just better than those people. Fill in the blank, right? It could be any different kinds of people. But often, this racist, thought, this racist thought comes out, I'm just better than them. I've made better decisions. I'm a better person. I've done better things. I look better. I, I have accomplished more. But rather than just say, stop having that racist thought, this is what the gospel does. When we think about the gospel, this is how we respond to this thought that's in our own hearts and in our own minds, maybe even on our own tongues sometimes. The gospel response says, anything good in me, anything good in me is a gift from God. Anything good. The good deeds I've done, how I look, it's all been a gift from God. It's, just, it's God graciously giving it to me or it's the Spirit working through me. I am by nature a sinner who's been saved by faith in Jesus alone. My worth is in, Christian, my worth is in the Imago Dei, I have value and worth because I'm created in God's image. And my identity is in Christ, which has been gifted to me. It's all about grace. So how can a Christian, when we truly love and believe and receive the gospel, how can we say that thing, I am better than those people? 
We actually say the exact opposite. We say, I am worse than those people, or I am just like any other sinner I see in my life. Listen to this quote. Justin Martyr, he was an apologist in the second century. And this is just true of Christians for the past 2,000 years, but listen to what he says. He says, We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or another country. But now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. So since day one, the gospel has made enemies into family. It has changed people's hearts that that look at others and say, I am better than that country, than that ethnicity, than that nationality, than that socioeconomic class, than that neighborhood. I am better than those people. But the gospel confronts that. Second thing we might say, and, and there might even be truth around this, well, that group of people, that them, they, they've wronged me. They've sinned against me. They've hurt me. And it might even be partly true. Like my grandfather was in World War II. He was a mechanic that worked on bombers. He literally had the, the Japanese army kill some of his friends. But even, even if that is true, even if a people group, an ethnicity, have wronged us, the gospel reminds us that we have wronged our God and creator in unthinkable, infinite type ways, yet we have been offered forgiveness still through Jesus Christ. When we realize the forgiveness we've received through Christ, we have the motivation and the power to forgive others of even unthinkable, horrible things. We have the power and the motivation to forgive others. Think about Jesus's, some of his teachings or his parables where he says, you know, there was this guy who was, was forgiven by the king an unthinkable, unrepayable a, a debt. And that is you. And so that should motivate us to change. Or Jesus' other parable where he says, two people go to the temple and uh, one realizes he's a sinner, doesn't even look up towards heaven, beats his breast and says, God, forgive me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy who, who, who leaves forgiven. That's the guy who leaves changed, the guy who realizes he's a sinner. So when we realize the gospel, when we realize who we are in our sin apart from Christ and how much forgiveness we've received, we can't help but forgive others. And I'm not saying it's easy, but we have the power and the motivation to forgive and to change. Dr. Eric Mason, who's a, a, a church planner and pastor in Philadelphia, Acts 29 pastor, writes about this. He says, when you know you're messed up, you can look at a racist in the face differently. It's got to be the living God that shows me myself, that shows me my brokenness, and lets me know that I've been forgiven. And because I've been forgiven much, how in the world can I withhold forgiveness from somebody else? The third and kind of final yet very common way we hear the, these racist thoughts play out in our culture and again, even in our own hearts and minds, we say, my comfort, my preferences, my desires, even my, my, my rights are being attacked by them, whether that's a different nation or a different political group or a different ethnicity or a different neighborhood, whatever. And maybe that is true. Maybe that is true. But even if it is true, even if they really are, even if your privileges and your comforts and your desires, even if your rights are being taken away, Christians look to Christ, who for our sake gave up all of these things for us because of his love for you and for me and for us and for the world. He gave up his preferences, his comfort, his desires, even his rights. His rights as the divine king of the universe in order to save us. When we think about that, when we think about all Christ gave up for us because of love for us, how can it not then allow us, how can that not allow or, or change our hearts, give us motivation to say, okay, I'm okay being comfortable for the sake of others because Christ did that for me a million times over. So as we wrap up here today, let's look to Christ. We're going to look at Philippians 2 that speaks of our great Savior, who though he was fully God, though he was the divine king of the universe, chose to give up not only his comfort, but also even his rights for the sake of us. 
And in, the, in this letter to the Philippians, Paul, he's writing to Christians. He says, if we want your heart to change, if you want the motivation to love others, think about the gospel. Look to our Savior who first did all of these for us. And because we have trust in that, we are new creations. We have this new heart within us. Let's close with this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, speaking to us, so I'm going to read it to us as a church. Hiawatha Church, adopt the same attitude as Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Hiawatha Church, this is our new reality. If you are a Christian here today, if you're not a Christian here today, this is what Christ did for you. The greatest act of, of, of enemy love ever. And through this, if you trust in his death and resurrection in your place, you move from being an enemy to a son or daughter adopted into his family. You're welcomed in. You're given a new identity. You're given a new nationality. You're chosen. You're desired. You're wanted. And if you are a Christian here today, that is our reality. Let's not let uh, peer pressure or laws or, or shame move us towards loving people who are different than us, both inside and outside of the church, but rather let's let the gospel be the true motivation that changes, changes our hearts and our minds. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, we thank you for this good news that you loved us who are different than you, who are far from you, who did not look like you, who were covered in sin and filth and, and all different kinds of evil, yet you chose us, you wanted us, you moved towards us, all at the cost of yourself. So God, help that gospel to be what changes our hearts and our minds, not, not just through being forced to welcome or tolerate other people around us, but help the gospel to change our hearts, to make us love those who are different than us. We pray that you would make Hiawatha Church a place where, where uh, love towards people who are different than us would be what we were known for. People would see the way we love people that are different than us and, and, and see the gospel demonstrated, that the world would see us as very peculiar. Why, why do these Christians, why does this church, why do they love others even though they don't have to? And so we need your spirit to do that. In our own sinful natures, we, we won't do that. So we need your help. So spirit, give us more and more of that. And thank you uh, that your son died the death that we deserve because of our sin in order to make us adopted sons and daughters, citizens of this new kingdom, given new hearts. And so help us to believe even when we have doubts. Change our hearts. Give us spiritual fruit. Give us love for others. We need that. Pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen.